I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. David. Hello, how are you? Hello, David. Thank you so much for having me back. Thank you for coming back. Sure. Well, recently there was yet another synagogue shooting, and this was in um, California, and Rabbi Goldstein said something that was so moving. He said, I had to look the murderer in the face to impart something to the rest of the world. And he said, did you hear this? No, I didn't. That the world, he said, I had to look the murderer in the face in order to be able to impart something to the rest of the world. And it's time for a change because we have lost our soul. Wow, wow. And as I was, you know, preparing and reading your book, I thought you were basically saying the same thing. It's time for a change. We have lost our soul. That's really what uh, the second mountain is all about, is about finding your soul. You know, all these shootings we've had are about a lot of things. There's about guns and there's a lot like that, but they're almost always about one lonely person in a room who gets himself radicalized by himself, who wants to leap from insignificance to somehow infamy by doing some horrible thing. But then the mention of that word soul, that's become a powerful word for me. I mean, Super Soul Sunday. Yes. Uh, because it's so important to have that concept that each individual has a soul. And in the book, I say, I'm not going to try to persuade you that God exists yes. or not. That's not my job. But I do ask you to believe that you have some piece of you that has no size, weight, color, or shape, but is of infinite dignity and value. And rich people don't have more of this than poor people. Old don't have more of it than young but that our soul is, slavery is wrong because it's an obliteration of a soul, that rape isn't just an attack on a bunch of physical molecules, it's an attempt to insult a soul. Mm -hmm. And the level we're all equal at is, we're not equal in our brains and in our muscles, but we're all equal in the soul. And if you don't have that concept of a soul, you're really dehumanized, I think. And actually, every crime is a crime against the soul. It's not just an act of violence or an act of, you know, trying to steal. It's a a crime against the soul. Yeah, they're not seeing your soul. And then when somebody's even, somebody took a laptop from my home a few years ago, you felt that violation that they didn't see me. Right. And and decency is about seeing deeply into the roots of other people. And all these sexual harassment cases on campus, if we would just treat each other as possessors of infinite souls, then you'd know how to behave in in those situations. I really appreciate, more than just, you know, like this book, I really appreciate that you've taken the time to assess where we are in our culture and come up with the conclusions that you have. And I would say that uh, reading it, I went, whoa, from the beginning, what has happened to David (laughs) Brooks? It feels like you had your own kind of transformation, and you write in the introduction that the wages of sin are sin. My faults accumulated and then crashed down upon me in 2013, which is about the time I interviewed you the last time. And you go on to say, I was unplanted, lonely, humiliated, scattered. What happened? Yeah, I had fallen for the lies that our culture tells us. One of them is that um, that career success will lead to fulfillment. And career success has not done that for me. I don't know if it does it for others, but it has not done that for me. It's just made me ambitions that are always leaping ahead. I got to do something else. Yeah. 
And then I, even though I communicate for a living, I was a really bad communicator. Mm. Uh, what was in my heart was not coming out of my mouth. And I was not really focusing or spending time on my friends. I'd come to value time over people. So I always wanted to be productive, so I was always on the move. And so there I was in, in the winter and fall of 2013, and I was, uh, my marriage had ended, my kids had left for college and mm -hmm. about to. Uh, and I was in an apartment alone, and I had weekday friends, people I could go to lunch with and talk about work, but I didn't have any weekend friends, which are the real kind of friends. Interesting. And so, and I never had anybody over. And Interesting so, question for people. Do you have weekday friends or weekend friends? Yeah, and I had one but not the other. Yeah. And I didn't have people over, and so if you went into my kitchen drawers where there should have been silverware, I just had post-it notes. And when there should have been plates, I just had like stationery, because my life was all work, and workaholism is a way to avoid an emotional and spiritual problem. And so that was a period where, you know, I, it, was a, it manifested itself sort of as a pain in the stomach. Loneliness is a pain in the stomach, and a kind of, permanent drunkenness, I wasn't really thinking right. And I'm, I look back on that period, I listen to all these sad Irish songs. Um, and it was, it was, you know, it was a low point. We all have low points. My mom died a couple, a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And that was a low point. But the low point of 2013 was my fault. Mm -hmm. And so that feels a little different. Mm. So you realized that you had ignored the calling of your own soul, actually. Yeah, right. So publishers have often said that writers write the books that they need to read. Was this the case for you for Second Mountain? For sure. Like, yeah. I, I like a phrase that we writers are beggars who tell other beggars where we found bread. Oh, like that's we, a good we one. We found it here. I'm going to share it with you. And then you, you write that's to, a good one. Uh, I think Kafka has a sentence, a book should be an ax for the frozen sea inside of you. Yes. And so it should chop you up a little. And I'm a writer. That's how I express myself. So I wanted to write my way to a better life. And so what I did was I did a lot of reading and interviewing and thinking, how do people pull themselves out of valleys? Uh, and then for five years, I did that and I share it here. Yeah, and you're best able to pull yourself out of a valley, having been in a valley, and being able to show other people how to get out of the valley. Yeah, that... And what is true is it's unavoidable that we all, that the human experience is about navigating the valleys. Yeah. I had a college student come up to me and I was talking about suffering and what it can teach. And she said, I haven't really suffered that much. Should I go find some? I said, don't worry, it'll it's come. It's gonna find it'll you. It'll come get you. Keep living um, and it will find you. Yeah. You say, I love this, that it's one of the inescapable truisms of life. You have to lose yourself to find yourself. Give yourself away to get everything back. Did that happen with you? I'm in the foothills of my second mountain, I'd say. I'd say the thing that happened to me in the valley is that I find what suffering does is it, it carves into you and it reminds you you're not the person you think you are. And I've came across a passage from this guy. That's Paul what it's Tilly. there for, right? Yeah, yes. That it carves into what he said was what you thought was the floor of the basement of your soul. Mm -hmm. And it carves through that, and then it carves through that floor, and it leaves these cavities below. And you see deeper into yourself than you ever thought you knew existed, and you realize that only emotional and spiritual fill, food will fill those dark cavities. So you realize I gotta find a bigger, larger life. Yeah, I, I love what you write on page 38 of uh, the second mountain, and that is the normal reaction to a season of suffering is to try to get out of it, to address the symptoms. Have a few drinks, play a few sad records, move on. The right thing to do when you're in moments of suffering is to stand erect in the suffering, you say. Wait, see what it has to teach you. Understand that your suffering is a task that if handled correctly with the help of others will lead to enlargement, not diminishment. 
The valley is where we shed the old self so the new self can emerge. There are no shortcuts. Yeah. And this was not something I wanted to hear <laughs> in 2013. Um, and I just want to you know, cure the problem <laughs> and, and distract myself the best I could. But uh, it turns out I couldn't. And the, the problem was a, a void in my social life, but also reflecting a void in myself. And so I just hadn't done the inner work. So let's just, just break it down for a moment, because I thought it's so interesting uh, when you talk about yourself in the beginning, and you said that you were aloof and you were, you know, not tuned in and describing yourself. You know, I felt some of that from you when, when we were talking, that you were um, a little removed yeah. from life. And it's interesting to me be because oftentimes the more successful people become, the worse that gets. Yeah. So you touched on that just a little bit right. at the beginning of our conversation, that the more accolades you get, and you, you have received them all, the more attention you get, the more awards you get, the more people say how great you are, you now are, have to continually prove how great you are. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's a vicious cycle. A bit of a performance. And that's not only people who have some celebrity, everybody sort of yes. lives as performance. Right. And so when you're in the seasons of suffering, first, I threw myself on my friends. And that turned out to be a great thing. I thought I was being a pain to them because I was yeah. just throwing myself. Well, let's talk about what you mean by suffering because, I mean, there's all kinds of suffering. Yeah. So what do you mean when you say suffering? Yeah, I would say any period where you've lost the thread of your life and any period where you, I, I feel that happiness often is when you have a, just a nest of warm relationships. You have this family here, this thing you do here, you've got all this warmth in your mm -hmm. life and you can travel between them. But I had, <laughs> didn't have that. Yeah. And I had my kids, so that was a source of, of great warmth and, and support and love. But you know, they were off going to college and doing mm -hmm. their thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I just felt, um, what, is, what am I here for? That's, an, that's the most important question we all get to ask ourselves. And the bottom line is, though, without community and relationships, right. eventually people suffer. Yeah. Right. And they have no resources when the setbacks come. Nietzsche has this great phrase, he was a why to live for can endure anyhow. And if you know why you're here, when the setbacks come, you, you still have your vision on the far horizon. Say it again. He who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. Oh. And, but if you don't know your why, then when the setbacks come, they're tough. Uh, and so I threw myself on my friends, but then, and this is about the wilderness and performance, uh, I had to go alone into the wilderness, a, sort of a social wilderness, where there was nobody to perform for. And when there's nobody to perform for, um, your ego sort of crumbles because there's no, nothing for it to do that really matters. There's a saying the rabbis have, it's a story about, uh, Moses is out being a shepherd, and there's a little lamb um, that runs away and runs like a gazelle. And lambs don't usually run like gazelles, but this one did. And Moses had to chase it deep, deep into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And the rabbis say that the lamb was Moses himself. You just had to go into the wilderness to do the inner work before you could come back. And what you say in Second Mountain is that anybody who's hit a valley in their life, and if you live long enough, you will. Yeah. You will lose someone or lose your job, or lose what you thought was your identity, or come across something that causes you to stumble and put you in the, in the valley of your own soul. And that every valley leads to a wilderness, and that in order to 
get through the wilderness, you have to do that alone. Right. And, and I think what you discovered... And I think that is what is so frightening to people. They don't want to be alone. Tell me about Espe it. <laughs> especially if you've lived your whole life trying to not be alone and to get away from just being with yourself. Yeah, that's where the scary dark monsters are down yeah. there. And But the, I think what you find, and this is why life is good, yeah. you find, if you go down, there's a phrase I borrow from Annie Dillard, you find your complex and illimitable ability to care for others. You found at the heart and soul level that you really have this capacity to be caring toward others if you would only give yourself permission to be open. That's what you mean by give yourself away. Well, you're at the beginning of that process. Yes. And I have a friend named Catherine Cox, who she said, when my first daughter was born, I realized I loved her more than evolution required. Oh, I love that. And I I've use always that. loved that. Yes. Um, because it suggests that we have the things we do for our genes and all that, but there's an extra layer to being human. And that is, uh, when you touch that layer, then you really have the, you go into yourself and then it's a highway right out and you begin to care. And then eventually people lift you out of the valley. You say on page 239 of the second mountain that the name of my condition was pride. I was proud of who I'd become. I'd earned a certain identity and conception of myself by working hard and being pretty good at what I did. I found it easier to work all the time than to face the emptiness that was at the heart of my loneliness. Pride in self comes in many forms. Among them is the pride of power, the illusion that you can gain enough worldly power to make yourself secure. Yeah. This is the pride suffered by those who seek to control others or to dominate other nations. In the regular world, pride is often rewarded, but in the underplay of which I was becoming slowly aware, pride is the great tormentor and humility the great comfort. Yeah. Some and, nice writing there, David. Oh, thank you. Yeah, some nice writing there. <laughs> I work on these things. Yeah. Uh, and, but, you know, pride is self-sufficiency, the thing, I can be self-sufficient. And that's the way to make yourself invulnerable. But eventually you, come, you get to the top of your first mountain, your career's gone okay. Yeah. Is but, is it, but how are you telling people? I, 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 I'm in the second mountain now, and I recognize very clearly what that first mountain was. You right. know, you're climbing, and you're getting accolades, and you're doing more, and you're doing more and you more. It seems to be a natural process. Like, how do you tell people to begin, how do you convince people to begin living a second mountain existence? First of all, I want you to explain first mountain versus second mountain. Go ahead. So the first mountain is what a lot of us do. We get out of school, and we think I'm gonna climb this mountain. I'm gonna be a cop, a teacher, a journalist, an actor, and I'm, that's gonna mountain I'm gonna climb. And you get to the top of it, and it's unsatisfying, or you fail, you fall off or something happens that wasn't part of the original plan. Let me just interrupt here. One of the funniest things I thought, as I do a lot of graduation speeches, you were saying you, the, the people come and do graduation speeches, very successful people, and tell other young people that it's, it's okay. Career success doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. It's okay, you should fail, embrace failure, from which yeah. you learn that if failure's okay, if you're J.K. Rowling, that seems... Yes. But a lot of people, failure's not okay, don't fail. That's my advice, try yes. not to fail. Try not to. <laughs> Better. Um, and so, but... So you get to the top of it and maybe you get a cancer scare, maybe you lose a child, something happens that just carves you open. And then you go through this valley experience we've talked about, and then you realize my ultimate allegiance is not gonna be to myself. I'm gonna fall in love with things and I'm gonna serve those things. And I say it's about making commitments, the kind of commitment that Ruth made to Naomi in the Bible, where, where you Where there go, goes, I will go, yeah. Your people will be my people. Where you die, there I will die, and there I'll be buried. My name comes from that, actually, oh, from yeah, that I whole wonder... passage, because it's Orpah, and Orpah goes right. back the other way. I think I did read that. Yes, and Orpah, yeah. So I originally was named Orpah, and the P got put in the wrong place, <laughs> and there you go. Yes. Yeah. So y making that kind of a commitment to something or someone. Right. Yes. Yeah. 
there, there, there are four ultimate. different categories of commitments, and most of us make to more than one, but sometimes only one, to a family and spouse, to a vocation, to a philosophy and faith, and to a community. And so people, some people just plant themselves down in their community, and they say, I love my town, and I'm going to serve my town. I met a guy in Youngstown, Ohio, not long ago. He just stood in the town square, and he had a sign that said, defend Youngstown. His town is facing some challenges. And so he just said, I'm living for Youngstown, and that's what he gives himself away to. Wow. So that's first mountain. Second mountain is? Second mountain is the service to one of those four things. It's, it's the ultimate allegiance not to self. And so, for example, I'm wearing this pin, uh, which stands for the weavers and people who are weaving our society together. And these are people who are on their second mountain. So, for example, there's a woman in Chicago named Aisha Butler. She was living in Englewood, which is a tough neighborhood there. Yep. And she was going to move out because it was dangerous. As she's moving out, she looks across out of her window and sees some little girls playing with broken bottles in an empty lot. And she turns to her husband and she says, we're not leaving. We're not going to be just another family who left that. And so she Googled got volunteer in Englewood. And now she runs Rage, which is a big community organization there. And so she planted herself down in Englewood. And she serves her neighbors and her community. Uh, and so that's, to me, what a second mountain life looks like. Well, I read all those stories about people who are doing extraordinary things with sometimes very little resources, people who are giving themselves away. And what I was thinking about is everyone who reads your book is not going to be able to start their own organization. Right. They're not going to be able to go build a school or save yeah. kids in a poor area, poor area. And I'm thinking about just the average person who's doing the best they can, but feels that void that you so beautifully articulate throughout the book. Yeah, a lot of people I describe the book have a very high standard. But for example, I have a friend named Trabian Shorters who lives in Miami, and he was ran into a lady who was helping school children leave the elementary school mm -hmm. in the afternoon. And he said to her, uh, do you have time to volunteer? And she said, no, I have no time. But she, and she said, are you getting paid for this? And she said, no. What are you doing after this? I'm taking food to the hospital. I take it to the ill. He says, you don't think that's volunteering? She said, no, that's just being a neighbor. And so any of us, who we, we don't have time to lead these really self-sacrificial lives, but we could invite our neighbors over for dinner. Right. When somebody comes out, moves in the neighborhood, we could have a barbecue for them. Now, they're just little things that we could do. And if we all did a few little things, right. contribute. And I was thinking, you know, I think there's no higher calling than being a parent than right. being a good one. Right. And you can be a first mountain parent or you can be a second mountain parent if you just shift the paradigm to... Right. To serving your kid and not making your kid the reflection of your own parenting skills. And I, I find, you know, I teach college, and I find there's a significant number of my kids who are the victim of conditional love, that their parents love them, but they are anxious about them. And when the kid does something that the parent thinks will lead to success, the beam of love is strong. When the kid does something the parent thinks won't lead to success, the beam of love is withdrawn. Yeah. And so the most important relationship in their lives is at peril. And they're scared, and they try not to avoid, they avoid risk. And it's just a punishing experience to be the subject of conditional love, where you have to earn your parents' love. And frankly, there's too much conditional love in our society, the idea that we have to earn love. Mm -hmm. we, we, we humans love each other because of who we are. First of all, I came to know about this book. I read that article in the New York Times, an excerpt, uh, The Quest for Moral Life. And I was like, wow, this is so good. I, this is time to talk to David again. And then I found out, oh, gee, you, you, you're writing this book. And I thought, whoa, you're really calling it out. You use the word disconnection 
And that resonated with me because I believe real connection is, you know, what I've been seeking all my life through the shows and, and the work. And I agree with you that I can, we can all feel this disconnection. There's this, something has happened to us. Yeah. And We're you, fragmented and disconnected. Right. And like, like the rabbi Goldstein said, yeah. we, we, we've lost our soul. Yeah. We don't have time to talk about all of this because I want people just to get the second mountain. That's why I keep saying it, <laughs> second mountain. <laughs> but I want to focus on that one sentence that you included in the article, hatred, fragmentation, and disconnection in our society. In your opinion, what is the root and why has, how, how, did, how did we get here? Well, what happened to me has happened to millions of people around the country. I'm not unusual. Uh, I got disconnected. And around the country, millions of people are disconnected. If you ask people how many times do you have a meaningful conversation with your neighbors, only 8% say they have meaningful conversations with their neighbors. 35% of people over 45 say they're chronically lonely. Majority of people say no one really knows them well. The suicide rate is up 30% since 1999. The teenage Isn't that incredible? Yeah, even more incredible is that this teenage suicide rate is up 70%, 70%. And so all of this, opiate addiction, this is all these deaths of despair are products of, of a, a world that's become detached from each other. And there are people alone, people not being helped. People do distrust each other. If you ask people a generation ago, do you um, trust your neighbors? A generation ago, 60% said yes. Yeah. Now it's 33% and 19% of millennials. The younger you get, the more distrust there is. So imagine going through life thinking, I'm, I can only really rely on myself. So do you think we lost a, we lost a core? Where, 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 yeah. did we where, where did we lose that? Yeah, I tell a, a cultural story. I think culture and our values yeah. really shape us. So in, in the 1950s, we had a very communal culture. It was like, we're all in this together. We got yes. to get through the war, the depression, we're all in this together. And that was, had some really good features. That was our mantra, features. that was our mantra, yeah. basically. And, our collective um, mantra. So if you lived in Chicago, you didn't say I'm from Chicago, you said I'm from 59th and Pulaski. It was that little neighborhood that you would, that was, those right. were your people. But that culture had real problems. It was too stifling. Right. It tolerated a lot of racism, sexism, anti-Semitism. We had to chop that up and move to something else. And we chopped it up in the 60s. Right. And we became more individualistic. I'm free to be myself. I just want to be free to be myself. And we needed to and do that. And that was a good thing right. for then. Right. But it, we've now, now had 60 years of that. And we've sort of run out the string. So we've got a lot of individualism. I'm free to be myself. But we don't have an ethos that encourages connection. And you, you've been a one-woman show on this, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things, you've got to commit to connection. I really will be there for others. But then it's a skill. Like entering into deep communication is a skill. Somebody has to teach you how to do it. Um, I was with a woman who, who lost a daughter. And I, I never knew what to say in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. and, and she said, people often wonder, should they mention Anna in front of me? Because they don't want to remind me of something mm -hmm. bad. And she said, they should know that Anna is always, always. On, on my yeah. mind. You can't and remind it, her, Anna's always yeah. there. And yeah. if they mention her, maybe I'll want to talk about it, maybe I won't, but you, mm -hmm. you've given me permission to do that. Mm. So, so that's like the little skills of how you communicate at the deepest levels, which frankly you've been doing your whole career. You were talking a about a one-woman show. I, I do think that. I remember in the early 90s, mid-90s, with um, Carolyn Mays, who wrote a book called The Anatomy of Spirit, and we were talking to the audience about mind, body, spirit. People said, what are you even yeah. talking about? I was trying to explain what a spirit was. Yeah. And, and I was saying, could you know you have a soul, right? And they were like, uh... 
Maybe. Yeah. So now, not only am I talking about it, but you're writing about right. it in the New York Times. We've come, right. we've, I, I, I consider that a good thing. Yeah, and when I first started working on this book, one of my publishers said, oh, you're in a woo-woo phase. And then maybe I'm in, well, woo-woo is real. This is the thing I've, I've learned, that the things that seem squaffed and squishy, like spirit, those are actually hard and practical. That's the way we are, so. Because we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Yes, yeah. well, that's well put. Yes. Well, it's not me. It's Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, I think, who said it. But you write about this incredible spiritual experience that you had. Where did that come in the process of writing? Yeah, it's sort of been a lifelong, very gradual. Like, some people have mystic, like, uh -huh. a, a road to Damascus, lightning. Mm -hmm. God says, here I am. So, right. Obey me. You have that. But I had a, a gradual, as a friend of mine put it, reality was more enchanted than the, the categories I had for it. And so, for example, we talked about souls. I was in Penn Station, which is in New York City, which is just about the ugliest place on the face of the earth, and the least likely you'd have a spiritual experience. But suddenly, I'm in these tunnels, we're all walking out of the subway, and I think all of these people have souls, and they all have souls that are breathing in them, and enchanted in them, and some souls are suffering in them. And so we don't even think about the depths of, of the reality we inhabit every day, but life is more enchanted and magical than we, than we assume it is. And when I'm doing my journalism and writing about others, or you're talking to others, yes. it doesn't, wouldn't be right to think, oh, I'm just talking to a bag of genetic material. There's some meaning at the, the person's life has infinite meaning. And so when you think we have a soul, and I know you've talked about this, then it's a short leap to think we all have a shared soul. Uh, and that there's a creator, we live in a created universe. And then that doesn't answer a lot of the questions you have, but it's a beginning. It's a beginning. I think people like to, particular, particularly where we are right now in this political moment, blame one thing. Yeah. There's one something that draws people to a single demon to blame. Democrats like to blame Trump, and Republicans like to blame the far left. But it's really much deeper and wider than that and below the surface. I want to read this from your introduction. You say, when a whole society is built around self-preoccupation, its members become separated from one another, divided and alienated. And that is what has happened to us. We are down in the valley. The rot we see in our politics is caused by a rot in our moral and cultural foundations in the way we relate to one another in the way we see ourselves as separable from one another, in the individualistic values that have become the water in which we swim. The first mountain culture has proved insufficient, as it always does. Yeah. And so I live in politics a lot of my life, and it's yes. just unpleasant a lot of the time. Readers are angry, politicians are angry, journalists are angry. Uh, we're just not very nice to each other. But isn't it true that that our current political status, where we are, is a reflection of who we are? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, I, that there's you... no one person to blame, right. and, and the fact that you know all media runs Trump, all President Trump, all day long, all the time. Everybody's complicit. And the online hatred comes from all directions. And yes. I would say I try to make this argument in the book that. We li we, we've left ourselves naked and alone, and in those circumstances, we do what our evolutionary roots tell us to do. We revert to tribe. And tribe seems like community. It's a bonding. Yeah. But community is based on mutual love. You and I love the same thing, the same I town. thought that was a great point you made. And tribalism is based on mutual hatred. We both hate the same thing. And so it's not an abundance mentality. It's a tribe is based on, is, is really founded on us against them. That's what it is. My right. tribe against your tribe. Right. 
My tribe's better it's, than it's your tribe. Always battle. Yes. And like if we are enjoined in community by mutual love, we don't mind that somebody else has another mutual love that they have their community. It's, there's plenty to go around, but tribalism is a scarcity attack, and I, I think that's what we're in. Uh, as I was reading this, I said to one of the producers <clears throat> when I finished, I said, it's kind of like David Brooks is now the Noah of our time, <laughs> try, trying to tell us the flood is coming, the flood is coming. <laughs> well, the water's <laughs> and, up to here. So. Yeah, water's <laughs> up to here, and no one's listening because they're trying to work the filters on their Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope, I hope people are noticing. I've, I've been around these amazing people for these weave things, and mm -hmm. I think I really feel the, the solution is out there. The people are out there, and they're. But moving. is the solution out there in pockets? I know right. you, you you write eloquently about all the weave uh, people and participants and people doing an extraordinary thing. And I think, oh, that's in pockets. We don't hear about that on the evening news. Right. Those of us yeah. who still watch the evening <laughs> news or get it on our Apple feed, however, you don't hear about those stories. Yeah, I think it's crazy we don't cover them. We in the media don't cover them because they are the, the main force in society. We don't cover them because they don't sell. Well, I find people like loving stories, the stories of heroism, stories of people just reached out and did something ordinary. And so one of the things that we're lacking is when to fight segregation, we had a civil rights movement. To fight environmental degradation, we had an environmental movement. We didn't have a connection problem, but we don't really have a national community movement. And so the people out there are a movement that doesn't know it's a movement yet. They haven't built the institutions, the common sense of ethos, the idea that we can all do this better if we do it together. Yeah. And that's really what we're trying to do. And how are we going to do that? You, you devote a whole chapter to our Instagram life. Yeah. How do we do that? How do you convince the Instagram lifers that yeah. moving towards community is, is, is the answer? Yeah, well, I think it eventually it burns itself out. Like, Instagram life is where you judge your life by aesthetic criteria. Am I having fun right now? Am I having fun right now? Mm -hmm. Can I put this on Instagram? Does this look good right now? And after a while, it doesn't really add up to much, and so it's good. I, I'm not I'm all for you know getting together for brunch and taking selfies with your Bloody Marys, but most people suffer what the, a concept that was very prominent in the Middle Ages, and we don't talk about it much, but I think it's all around. Acedia. Acedia, mm -hmm. and that's the loss of desire. Like your heart is not really engaged in your own life. Mm. Uh, your heart is over here, but your life is sort of over there, and a lot of people are doing the the run of of brunch and getting drinks and going here and doing Pilates there and Bikram yoga there, but they haven't found a thing to devote The pictures to. all look good. Yeah, right. Yeah, the posts look good. You know, I had, a, I had a psychologist tell me the other day that I was asking about why is suicide rate so up and depression in the young. She said, a lot of the, my patients have a lot of different performative selves they send out into the social media world, but none of them are their real selves. And so there's like a crisis there. They have these personas they've created, one for Instagram, one for Snapchat, one for Twitter or whatever. Uh, but it's not the real self. And I, I really want to get, understand the core of this teenage depression and suicide. Mental health facilities and colleges overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Something's going on. I, I confess I really Something don't Something major is happening because I can see it's, yeah. it's destroying us. Right. It's destroying us. So um, how do you suggest people begin plugging back into their own lives? How do, we, how do we get to the second mountain? Yeah, well, first, uh, I, I believe in books. I'm a bookish person, so I always have a spiritual book going. Mm -hmm. And that just keeps reminding me. And then you look for a social problem that captures you. And sometimes you are if you're just... looking for a spiritual book, this might be the one. <laughs> second mountain. Just to mention. Just, just to, to mention, mention. yes. <laughs> uh, 
And then you're looking for a problem. What problem grabs me? And I was lifted in my life by a couple named Kathy and David who had a home in D.C. and they had a kid in D.C. public schools and that kid had a friend who didn't have a place to stay. So they invited that kid over. And then another kid came. And by the time I went to dinner there six years ago for the first time on a Thursday night, there were 30 kids around the dinner table, dozens Yeah, I love that around. story, yes. And I walk in there the first day, introduce myself to a kid and I say, I'm David. And he says, we don't really shake hands here. We hug here. Yeah. And especially back then, I was not the huggiest guy on the face of the earth, but I've been hugging with them. And the problem, we all need second families. And we have our family and that's great. And we need more families. And the problem was providing a home for all of us. Uh, and so we just have dinner Thursday nights. We throw our problems on the table and we share. And I took my daughter there and she said, that's the warmest place that's I've ever been. That's the warmest place I've ever been, yes. And so we all need places like that. That gives you a, a glimpse of a better way to live. You would like to see people and even um, entire societies move towards what you call in Second Mountain a moral renewal, moving from lives based on bad values to a life based on better ones. How do we do that when we see every day that greed and ambition are really running amok in the right. world? Committing ourselves first to our to relationships, and that sounds easy, but we sometimes think life is quantitative, how much, Yeah. but it's qualitative, how thick. And so some organizations, the people have come in there and they're leaders of organizations, and they make sure we have a moral mission for our organization. Everybody in this organization is going to know what it is. I'm going to really serve as a mentor serving you as you know the famous servant leadership and it's how you do things every day the one story i tell in the book i got from a book called practical wisdom it's about a hospital janitor named luke oh yes and luke, that was an incredible story i'm, yeah. I'm glad you're sharing that go yeah. ahead so luke um was just cleaning rooms and one of the rooms he was cleaning was a kid was in a coma that he wasn't coming out of mm -hmm. and his dad would sit there every day and one day luke cleaned the room and his dad was out getting a smoke and so he cleans the room, but then later, the dad comes up to him and says, you didn't clean my son's room. And the first mountain response is to think, my job here is cleaning rooms. And if that's your mentality, then you say to the dad, I did clean your room, the room, but he, you were out getting a smoke. The second mountain mentality is to say, my job is not cleaning rooms. My job is providing comfort to patients and their families. And if that's your mentality, then you go back and clean it again the second time so he can have the comfort of seeing you clean it. And that's what Luke does. And so we, we're all in a lot of daily I know. I read that story, David, and I thought, I'm sorry. I would have been, I would have been first mountain. I would have been, I cleaned the room. I cleaned <laughs> it. See, I cleaned uh, it. You of all people would not. <laughs> I cleaned the room. But I, I, I have had a similar story. Years ago, I was in Baltimore and um, working for WJZ-TV, which was at the top of the hill, and they call it Television Hill. And one of the janitors who, um, Joe, was walking up the hill and I stopped to give Joe a ride and I was asking Joe, how do you like working here and how is it for you? And he said, I just love working in TV. <laughs> yeah, Says see? the guy. See, yeah. is, I just love working <laughs> yeah. in TV every yeah. day. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. Says that, Joe the janitor. Yeah, that's an important part of a healthy organization. Everybody in the organization knows how they're connected to the mission. And, yes. and that is not, doesn't always happen. So what do you say to your critics? I think it was a Washington Post columnist who asked you to lighten up. <laughs> and uh, did you see that one, lighten up? And what about people who say, uh, I, you know, I was saying you're Noah, 
People say you sound like, you know, our grandparents talking about the good old days when life used to be so simple and people had morals and values. Every generation tends to believe that the next one is, you know, going to hell in a handbasket. The good old days are gone. How how do you respond to that? Yeah, I don't want to go back. We're not going to go back to the 1950s, nor should we. Um, It was unfair society. It was a really boring society. The food was terrible. Yeah, (laughs) when I read that, I was thinking, yeah, food did get better, (laughs) right? Way better. Yeah. And so we're not going to go back. Food but used to be so bad. I, it's, yeah, it's mayonnaise. I, so I remember when Especially I, at white people's houses. I know, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had the Jewish thing, that was some advantage. But. We always had a little flavor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, food used to be really bad. I used yeah. to go to my friends' houses. And nobody's mom could cook, and everybody was doing the same jello right. mold. Frozen dinners. Yes, frozen, frozen yeah. Di- Absolutely. Yeah. So that way life is better. But so I don't want to go back to deference to authority. I want to go into a culture where we really commit to each other, where we say, what are the big promises in my life? What have I made promises to? And an ethos built on, I'm going to really decide what do I commit to? What, what vows do I make? And to me, a commitment is a promise made from love. And then the other thing I say about a commitment is it's falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. Because love is always going to falter. And so Jews love their God, but they keep kosher just in case. They build a lifestyle around it. So I'm, I, I'm hoping just in myself and I'm hoping for others, just switch the lifestyle a little to really take time and work on the stuff you've been talking about these years. Well, you call, it's the second mountain, the quest for a moral life. What is a moral life? Well, I think it's a, a life where you really have your ultimate allegiance is not to yourself. It's to something else. And the two mountains are really just metaphors for two different value systems. One is the value system that we, a lot of us, live in, which is about self and about the meritocracy that I am, what I accomplish. And the second value system, these people, these weavers I've met, they're not driven by money, they're not driven by celebrity, mm-hmm. they're not driven by power. And they, they, they want to live in right relationship with others, and they want to feel they're doing something good. And so another story, one of my favorite stories in the book, is about a woman named Mary Gordon, who's founded something called Roots of Empathy. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they, she takes kids, moms and kids, and puts them in eighth grade classrooms. And the kids, the students sit around the infant, and they try to guess what's in the infant's mind, because that's how they learn empathy. And one of the kids was bigger than the rest because he'd been held back, run through the foster care system, and he wanted to hold the kid. And the mom was nervous because he was so big and a little scary looking. She let this kid named Darren hold the per baby, and he was great with the baby, nestled it, mm-hmm. and then gave it back. He gave it back to the mom, and he asked questions about parenthood. And one of the questions was, if nobody's ever loved you, can you be a good father? Mm. And so that's a case of somebody, that's just what they want to do. They want to reach into the valleys and pull people up, and that's the joy they get. I found this so interesting, your, your quote from Nietzsche, who uh, wrote about how people can identify their calling in life. He wrote, the way to discover what you were put on earth for is to go back into your past, list the times you felt most fulfilled, and then see if you can draw a line through them. What have you truly loved thus far? What has ever uplifted your soul? What has dominated and delighted it at the same time? Assemble these revered objects in a row before you, and perhaps they will reveal a law by their nature and their order, the fundamental law of your very self. I've always said the same thing. Who knew I was that wise? (laughs) But I've always said, if you look back at your life and connect the dots, there's a pattern. 
of the things that made you feel fulfilled. Yeah, I'd and love say, that. This is the same thing he's saying, right? I love that line, though, yes. all of your very self. That Parker Palmer says, listen to your, listen to your life. Yeah. So and when you did this, you did this exercise. Yes. What did you find out well, about yourself? I find how aesthetic it is um, uh, that, like, I read a book when I was seven called Paddington the Bear. And at yeah. that moment, I wanted to become a writer. And it was just because I loved the feel of it. I have a quote in there from Annie Dillard, who was interviewing a painter. She said, why do you go into painting? And the woman just said, I love the smell of paint. Yeah. It just, you, it's, it feels right. It, you just, something about no. it. Uh, my daughter. James Hillman calls that the acorn within the oak. Oh, in his uh, book, oh, The Soul's see? Called. Yeah, That's it's the good. acorn within That's the good. oak. Yeah. yeah. My daughter, when she was five, she walked into an ice hockey rink. She felt at home. And she's now in her 20s, and she lives in, works for the Anaheim Ducks mm -hmm. organization and teaches youth hockey. Mm -hmm. And she just feels at home there. And some people, you just find that thing where you feel at home and trust the aesthetic sensibility of it. You write so beautifully all the time. Every Sunday in the New York Times, I look for your column first. I look to find it, and some, sometimes you're there, sometimes you're not. But on page 115, you write, we bury the faint crackling of our inner fire underneath other safer noises. I'm going to say that again, because it's so beautifully written. We bury the faint crackling of our inner fire underneath other safer noises and settle for a false life. Yeah. So how do we teach children and young people not to bury the fire? Yeah. Well, one thing is we can do, put some rules around the phones. Yeah. I think about there has how, to be how we communicate. We're talking about the heart and soul. How much heart and soul communication happens through a screen, through the phone, when we're texting? We, we, it's usually just fast and, and gradual. But heart and soul connection really is, has to, you have to be down in it. And so I think for, we're going to figure out rules on how to control the screens. I have a friend, he's got a rule for himself. Every morning before he looks at a screen, he goes outside and looks at the sky for a few minutes. Just to, OK, yeah. I'm going to yeah. look up. And then he has a, a rule where he's going to take one hour a day, one day a week, one, I think, week a year, no screens, just Sabbath. He's going to create Sabbaths. So that's one of the things I think we can do. And then, well, now the new phones, you get your screen. I, I, I reduced my screen time by 26 percent oh, really? this past week. I was so excited. Yeah, that's good. Yes, it's because I was reading your book, <laughs> so I had more time. Not that there's anything wrong with Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I reduced my screen time. I was because yeah. that's what I'm trying to do. Yes, and not to have the phone be the first thing you reach yeah. for in the morning. Yeah. But and how can you make a life commitment if you can't? focus your attention for 30 seconds, and that's really yes. my problem. It's always like, oh, I gotta, I'm reading two pages, I'll go check, maybe yeah. I got an email. And that, that has become a real disease and a real way to not stay where you need to stay over periods. And you can't control when your mind is gonna go somewhere. I mean, one thing I do is I, I'm a walker, so I, I find long walks are just very, like, and then you're, you're not thinking of anything for most of the walk. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly later, you go, oh, that's a thought about my a truth about my life or a truth about somebody else's life. As I said, I read your column, and I'm always looking for your column. Um, are you always thinking about all the time our culture and what our actions and the culture and experiences are really conveying about us? Is that, is that how your mind works? I think some people think about technology shapes history yeah. or, or politics. I think culture, and we shape history from the ground up. Uh, and so that's why I'm optimistic, by the way. Are you? Yeah, I am very. Uh, because we never underestimate human ingenuity. When we went from the 50s to the 60s, we just shifted our culture 
and we, we had a collective problem. Yes, and a lot of that ingenuity comes on the first mountain, I must say, David. Uh, no, well, you, I'm not against the first mountain. I just want to step both. Okay. So, um, but you got to have the skills that you build on the first mountain. You got to have the platforms, right. frankly. Uh, but you, but we, you know, we solve a pro our problems. We shift over. Cultures work for a little while. They stop working. We chop it up. And those moments when we chop it up are bumpy. We're in one of those moments now. 1968 was such a moment. Mm -hmm. And it, you can get hopeless because everything seems to be flying to pieces. But then we pivot, we figure it out. And the way I think culture changes is a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us follow them. And I've, I think where there are people around us we can see in our own lives who found that better way to live. And if we, follow, if we all follow them, we, we'd create change. And I think it's also a good reminder of what you just said. And those of us who are old enough to have lived through 1968, um, we thought it for, you know, it, it was a bad time. Martin Luther King was killed in April and then Robert Kennedy in the right. fall and riots and right. dissension and fragmentation. All of that was happening then. Right. But it seems to be more condoned now. I mean, I thought even in 68, there was a moral center. There was a moral core about this is right and this is wrong. I think that that's gotten meshed yeah. and confused. Yeah, I think one of the things I noticed, like I grew up in Greenwich Village in the, that period, so I was sort of surrounded by hippies. There was actually a joyfulness to them that sometimes I don't find in our movements. And I, joy is another big word, I think, oh, for both of us. I was us. just gonna ask you about that. Yeah. You say on page two, 201, ultimately joy is found not in satisfying your desires, but in changing your desires so you have the best desires. Yeah. And I thought, well, aren't best desires personal? Isn't that, you know, subjective? So what are the best desires? Yeah. Are we talking about your best desires or the reader's best desires? Yeah, I, we all love a lot of things. I bet we all have a pretty similar view of what's a higher desire. So for example, if you, so a friend tells you a secret and you blab it at a dinner party, you've put your desire for popularity above your love of friendship. And we all know that friendship's a better love than popularity. If you lie for money, you've put your love of money above your love of honesty. And we all have an instinct, honesty is a better desire. So raising your desire up to the, the things that really are worth desiring. And even if a friend, somebody has told you something and you're telling it and you know you shouldn't be telling it, everybody who's ever done that, myself included, you know when you're telling it, yeah. you shouldn't be telling yeah. it. So you know the higher desire. Right. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. all succumb to temptation. Yeah. But I make this distinction between happiness and joy. Mm -hmm. And happiness is when the, the self expands, you move toward your goals, you achieve a success. And joy is when you transcend the self, where a mother and daughter are just so in love with each other that you can't tell where one ends and one begins. When somebody's out in nature, uh, when somebody's so lost in their work, they've lost all consciousness. And my rule is happiness is great. I'm all for happiness, success, and winning mm -hmm. the Super Bowl. Joy is better. If you aim your life toward joy, you'll, you'll end up in the right spot. How did you go from being practically, were, were you an atheist? Yeah. How do you go from being an atheist <laughs> to coming to, which I thought this was a beautiful term too, coming to the understanding that God is the ground of our being? Yeah. So, well, I, I, the simplest answer was that Read life, the book. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Simplest answer is yeah. read the book, but okay. Life is also, it just got, the categories I had didn't explain life as I experienced it. Like you have moments of, of joy, 
moments where magic is happening. I quote this passage in there, the Zadie Smith passage. Um, she's out dancing in a nightclub, and Tribe Called Quest comes on. Some strange guy reaches out her hand, mm -hmm. and she says, the top of our heads flew away. We just danced and danced. We gave ourselves up to joy. Yes. And that's magic. And so if this is a material universe, just that. I don't think that explains that. I think we at moments, key moments in our lives, get a sense of transcendence, get a sense there's something magical and enchanted about the world. And for me, faith isn't like God telling me every day what to do. I don't hear his voice that, that often. But I, I feel we live in a created world uh, and that there is some sense of purpose and meaning to our life. And human beings are amazing creatures. Uh, you know, we, penguins are very loyal to each other, but our capacity to love for each other is, as my friend said, more than evolution required. It's yes. like, it's really, love is like. I just love that. I loved it more than evolution yeah. required. Yeah. Yes. On page 42, you write, this is the pivotal point, maybe of this whole book. On the surface of our lives, most of us build the hard shell. It is built to cover fear and insecurity and win approval and success. When you get down to the core of yourself, you find a different, more primeval country. And in it, a deep yearning to care and connect. You could call this deep core of yourself the pleroma, is it called? The, or the pleroma? Yeah, pleroma, I guess. Or substrate. It is where your heart and soul reside. So, so many people are disconnected from that. How do we begin that reconnection? Well, I think you get out of your ego. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the ego is like, how am I doing? How am I doing? How, what do people think of me? Yeah. And believe That's me, I, I, I'm certainly have not left that behind. Yeah. But you, you sort of focus, well, what does my heart want? My heart wants to fuse with another. How am I doing in that mm -hmm. department? Mm -hmm. And what does the soul want? My soul wants to serve some good. How am I doing in that department? So just paying more attention about down here. And it seems simple. But it's hard. Like you, it, you, you say that in the book that you, the the goal is to fall through your yeah. ego. Yeah, and how, do, how do you do that? Well, I, I think it's this process of going to the valley, get broken open, let somebody reach you up, and then once you're ready for the second climb, you just find things to commit to. And the people I've seen, I've been around people who are joyous recently. I'm only, once a month, I find somebody just radiates joy. Yeah. They just, I mean, the famous person I was with recently for this Weave project, I was around Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy just radiates joy. He's just, because he cares about people. You know who else does that? My friend Gail. She does, yeah. My friend Gail. She is just luminous. Yeah. That's why she's had this major moment in her career. Right. You know, at 64, yeah, it's like her career is broken up because she just radiates joy. And from the moment she took the job sitting on CBS, I said, you were sitting in the seat yeah. of your, your soul and your life right yeah. now because she just loves it. And you know what else she shares this with you? People who are really relational are not a good ask good questions because they actually care about the other person. They see deeply into it. I have a friend named Pete, and when I was going in the dumpster, we'd have these late night phone calls, and he would ask me questions to give me advice. And he'd ask me like five or six, and I would think, oh, here, he's going to start giving me advice. But then he would ask me another five or six. Mm -hmm. And so that's what a good listener is. They ask that other five or six questions. Right, beyond. They really want to get and understand who you are. And seeing deeply into another person, these are all skills. These are not just something automatic. Automatically, we judge on the surface. Yeah, you know, I, I, there was a time about, I don't, I don't know, five or six years into doing the Oprah show every day. I could not only see deeply, I could, I could literally feel what the other person was feeling. Yeah. To the point where I had to learn to start protecting myself right. a little bit, because yeah. I would go so far in, right. 
into the listing right. that I was like yeah. <laughs> taking on their stuff. Yeah, and you're, and you're doing this every day and you're, you're getting the most vulnerable moment of their life yes, every day. Yes, yes, yes. So I remember going into the control room saying that to um, the executive producer, like, wow, I'm like feeling everything. I'm like, and she said, you need to stop that because <laughs> right, you're yeah. going to end up sick. Burn yes. Out, burnout and self-care. Really. Yes. Like, and this is for nurses, for teachers, for a lot of people who are just interact yes. with a lot of people. Yeah. Ha knowing when to go in and when to hang back. Yeah. Because you can't just do that. Right. But that, as I say, that, that's wisdom. That's where wisdom lies. Yeah. Well, that's why that show was my greatest teacher. Yeah. I learned so much every day just yeah. listening to yeah. other people's stories. You write about your second wife, Anne, who you married in 2018. Right. So she's still like your new bride. She is. I'm yeah. blissfully happy. And you're 23 years mm -hmm. uh, in distance in age. You must have known that not everybody was going to understand your relationship. And many of your weekly readers took to social media. Somebody said, I'm having trouble squaring Mr. Morrill's yeah. articles with his personal life until he's willing to discuss his own behavior. He cannot speak for hours. So right. how do you handle that kind of criticism? Yeah, well, of course, people gossip and they don't know what actually happened. And yeah. I, I describe a little yeah, you what do. happened. Can and for it. her, um, it was, we just exchanged memos about my last book. And then... My marriage was ending, and then she was just exchanging memos. I was living alone in the apartment. I was going through a bad period. She really had no view into my other Where life. Where you'd been, yeah. We, we were working as research and author. And then what happened in sort of toward the end of 2013, I was in a vulnerable place in life, and she was an amazing person. And she, I started developing feelings for her. And maybe she started developing feelings for me. And we knew there was this huge age gap. We knew the situation we, sh we were in. So what did she do? She cut off communications between us, because she said this can't happen, and she moved away to Houston. <laughs> and so she went away for three years, and we were out of communication for all that time, because she said, I'm going to do this, if it's going to happen, I'm going to do this right. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's a very hard decision to make. Mm -hmm. And she did the right thing at that moment. Mm -hmm. I, I was not happy about it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to let's see what this is. Mm -hmm. And but she said no, I'm going to do the right thing. And she had a lot of clergy and a lot of friends, counselor, counseling her on how to behave. And so to me, this was a moment of moral rectitude for her. Frankly, mm -hmm. this was a moment where I was not strong, but she was strong. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm proud of her for that moment. And then we went off and led our lives. She moved to Houston. I thought we'd never see her. And then I moved my social life to New York and had a lot of great friendships there, uh, and had a relationship. And then life had its twists and turns. Three years later. Still, she's sort of on my mind, and, it and then it happened. Yeah. And then what had seemed impossible began to seem inevitable. And my love for her is as strong as, as can be, and I think her love for me is very strong. The age gap is something that has to be faced. Yeah. And the way, I mean, I worry about it so much because I'll die probably a lot before her. Yeah. But the, the one bit of advice that was given to me on that, first, I love all her friends. I think she loves my yeah. friends, so it hasn't been a problem that way. But center your relationship in the younger person's friend group. You don't, don't let the older person's friend group be the friend group for the relationship. Really? So if you center on the younger persons, then it'll be just be balanced. Well, you write a lot about marriage. We don't have time to get into all of that. You write a lot because that's one of the commitments. Right. But one of the things that struck me, and I think this is great for people who are watching or listening, make sure whoever you marry is somebody you want to have conversations yeah. with because you're going to be having conversations <laughs> for the rest right. of your life. Yeah, that was a Nietzsche thing. He said marriage is a 50-year conversation. You, you, you don't want to be one of those people at the diner who just don't talk to each other. So you got to have purity of conversation with, and we could 
be on the phone. How many times have we been out and seen people who are sitting out in the world and sitting at dinner and they're not even talking to each other? Now they're just on their phones. Yeah, I know. So that's not good. And so I'm blessed we we can talk for hours and hours and hours. Has this new marriage, has this relationship brought you joy? Yes. Yeah. I, it's funny, when I was that back in my smoldering period, I had all these smoldering spiritual experiences. Now I'm blissfully happy. I am, and I not only have a marriage, I really got a project that I'm doing that I believe in. Uh, the book is something that was very meaningful for me to write, so it was a project that I really believed in. And life is about intensity, and I have a lot of intense commitments and intense loves. And so I, I say good riddance to all those smoldering spiritual breakthroughs. I'm ra- I'd rather be blissfully, blissfully. joyful. Uh, me, me too. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate what you write about the social fabric. As you bring the book to an end, you talk about whenever I treat another person as if he were an object, I rip the social fabric. When I treat another person as an infinite soul, I've wo- woven the social fabric. Whenever I lie, abuse, stereotype or traumatize a person, I've ripped the fabric. Whenever I see someone truly and make them feel known, I have woven the fabric. Whenever I accuse someone of corruption without evidence, I have ripped the social fabric. Whenever I disagree without maligning motives, I have woven it. The social fabric is created through an infinity of small moral acts, and it can be destroyed by a series of immoral ones. And I think that's what so many of us are feeling is that like the social fabric is being ripped from us daily, particularly if you watch the news, yeah. if you and take in all the... None of us are perfect. We all, you know, stereotype. We all do things that aren't fair or right to other people. We don't always take the time to really deeply understand others. But it is the good news, it's up to us, that it's our choices that create the social fabric. It's people up above in politics do sh- shape that. The president can really rip a social fabric but um, we can all weave the little fabric around us and create the context for us to lead you know, the best Do you think that's ever. what's happening now? Is the president ripping our social fabric? For sure, every yeah. day. Every day he has a, an instinct for where our wounds are and he pokes at them and he rips us. And so that's hard, but uh, I still think he's not as powerful as we are. As we, the collective, right. are. And so, I've heard one of the candidates talking about this recently, about even before policy, we need to mend, I don't think you use the term fabric, but we need to mend the moral core. Do you think that's what needs to happen? Yeah, we need institutional change too, but institutional change can't happen until we have trusting bonds between us and we can work together for it. And so if we're distrusting each other, then we can't do the institutional change we need. We need a second mountain leader. We do, we do. If, If Abraham Lincoln were around, he was a good one. Uh, yeah. But there are a lot of great leaders in our history. Uh, we need someone who is not just tweeting about himself all the time. Yeah. Can I ask, go soul to soul with you? Sure. Okay. What was your greatest fear that you were able to overcome and what allowed you to overcome it? I wouldn't say I've completely overcome it, but my fear was if I was honest about myself, people wouldn't love me. Mm. And so I had to hide everything. Do you believe in God, a universal force, love, spiritual consciousness, a unified feel? And if so, how does that show up for you? What tells you it's there? Uh, well, I do believe in God. It shows up in... And you call it God? Yes, I call okay. it God. Okay. And I see it as a pattern of way of living that is celestial grandeur, that in the stories that have been passed down to us, there are lessons in 
how to copy your life, how to live, who to live after, and we can experience grace through those stories. Celestial grandeur. <laughs> Got away with words, David <laughs> You got away with words, celestial grandeur. Okay, what was your greatest awakening? It was that 2013 experience. Mm -hmm. It was the moment when I just said, I'm, I'm letting go here. We'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't able to talk like I couldn't have had this conversation without six years of... Of, of being in the valley and going through the wilderness. Uh, yeah, the work. Yeah. What did you once believe was insurmountable and in the end, recognize the solution was really so easy? Oh, well, I guess that would be my marriage. It mm. seemed impossible. And so we'd, we'd cast it out and never seemed possible. But once we had discovered years later that we do love each other, then this is, this is what it is. This is real love. What was your greatest suffering and what wisdom did you gain from it? Yeah, as, as I said, it was, it was from that, that loneliness period. And I... It, was a, it wasn't just one thing I gained. I gained a whole difference, a different viewpoint. Is that when your faith was most tested? I think so, yeah. Or, or even sometimes you've got to be beaten up before you're tender enough to feel. And I think life had to beat me up a little. Mm, that's a good one. Uh, and so it made but me... I try to. I try to say, God, you don't have to teach me nothing new today. <laughs> you don't have to beat me up. I can get it. Just yeah. let me get it. Yeah, right. I can now, get it. Yeah, yeah. Now it would be fine. I'm, I'm good with blessings now, just blessings. When is the last time you were filled with awe? Uh, often in nature, often around other people. I'm, I mention these weavers all the time. Uh, I was with a woman who had the ter worst thing that happened to her could happen. She lost her husband, killed her kids, and himself. And she lives a life of service. And she, she says, I'm angry a lot of the time. Whatever he tried to do to me. Oh, that was the woman who left the two sons? Yeah. And she went away went to... Went antiquing with yeah, the Yeah, went mom. antiquing with the mom. And then... And, and she came back, and, and the, they were gone. And they were gone. Yeah. And but now she she helps women who've suffered from violence. She um, she runs a free pharmacy. She teaches at school, uh, and she leads a life of selflessness. And people like that are pretty awesome. Yeah. Anybody who can overcome that. Yeah. Th the worst thing that, that could happen. The worst to you. That's the worst story I've heard on the street. What is the piece of wisdom you would like the leaders of the world mm. to? to actually use in their decision-making? If there was one thing you could offer? Hmm, the first, well, the one thing I would offer was, well, A, that we're more unified than we are dissimilar. Uh, but B, don't do it alone. I think a lot of leaders that I meet, they think I'm gonna be president or prime minister alone. And so they herd themselves, they isolate themselves. I, I often ask people in government, what's the thing you learned that you didn't know beforehand? And one president told me there's a lot more passive-aggressive behavior than I thought, that I had given an order and nothing happens. <laughs> but but the one answer I got was, I used to think this job was 75% personality in relationships, and now I realize it's 95% personality in relationships. So you got to get out of your leadership ice bubble and really throw yourself on people. Is it possible for ambition, advancement, competition, new technology to exist without hurting other people? It's a challenge. I, I think competition, I think we can, we can find a balance. Life is a balance between opposites. Politics is a competition between partial truths. And so I'm not against being competitive. I still want to be good at my job. So I live that life, but I want to have another complete... Say that again about politics. Politics is a... Is a competition between partial truths. So it's between like achievement and equality, between security and freedom. 
and usually in the big arguments between the individual and the collective. Usually you're just trying to negotiate, get the right balance one by one. And so you're just trying to, f like the ship will sometimes lean that way, so you lean that way. The ship sometimes lean that way, so you lean that way. And you're just trying to get balance. What advice do you have for people who are living a false life? Yeah. That it'll bite you in the rear in the end. Mm -hmm. That sooner or later, the soul will come out of wherever that soul hides, and it'll sit right there in front of you and it'll say, what's your justification here? What have you served? Is it good or ill? Uh, we're all caught in these moral dramas, and we can be numb to that when we're busy. But eventually you're going to get caught, and you have to have an answer to that question. What have you done? Why have you been called? What have you served? What is the question or the mystery that sits in your mind that you hope to have answered in your lifetime? Do you still have one? I'd love to know God, really. I mean, God is weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the scientists say we live in a multi-universe, like there are millions of universes, yeah. and they're all parallel with each other, and there's some, another one where you and I are also sitting in that other one. Yeah. That's a weird idea, but God is weirder than that. <laughs> like the idea that something existed before time and breathed life into the world and has a, embodies a moral law, that's weird. And so I, I would love to just get some deeper understanding, some deeper contact with that. And I think it would be, I've, I see people who've got what they call the full disease. Uh, and those people radiate joy, the one mm -hmm. who really have some, where God is just integrated into them. Uh, can you describe a moment when you experienced true grace? Yeah, I, um, I knew grace before I knew God, weirdly. Which is say, I felt smiled upon before I believed there was any deity. And the story, one story I tell is, um, I was coming home from a TV show I do called The News Hour on PBS, and I pulled yeah. into my driveway, and the driveway wrapped around the side of the house. And the kids were like 12, 9, and 4. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah and they were chasing each other across the yard, running after this ball. Mm -hmm. And they were tumbling after each other, and they were laughing and giggling. And for some reason, my lawn looked great. I don't know how that happened. And I sat in the car with the windshield. I just saw this picture of family happiness. And as I say, it, it was one of those moments where the reality spilled outside its boundaries. I just felt gratitude for happiness that I couldn't possibly deserve or live up to. Mm. And that, that's what grace is. I mean, it's like, wow. There was it's, a moment of grace. Yeah, yeah. For I, sure. yeah. I, I was in that car with you when you yeah. were watching, when yeah. I, the way you described it in the book. Yeah. What were you utterly convinced was the truth at one time in your life that you now believe or know mm -hmm. to not be true? Well, at this I get to get a little political. I used to be a socialist, and then I became a free market conservative, and now I'm neither. <laughs> and so my political views have evolved m much more than mm -hmm. anything else. And we should be open. And they to evolved that. because what? You stayed I, open. You paid attention. You listened. You what? Yeah. Well, I think because most people's political views do not evolve. Right. They, they are stuck. Yeah, and it might be ego, but I think circumstances change. So in the 1980s, we had a stagnant economy, and I really did not like the Soviet Union. I felt that was an evil empire, really. And so I was for the free market, but now I see the free market, and it's increasingly not working for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so I've lost some of my free market views, and I'm much more for using government to give people a leg up. And so there's, that's been a big shift. But mostly my life is, um, it's like deepening. It's like somebody names something for you, and you say, oh, that's what I believe. But you didn't know you believed it until somebody else named it mm -hmm. for you. And sometimes life is like trying on dresses or suits in the mall. You try on a lot of dresses, try on a lot of suits, and finally, oh, yeah, this one is the one that fits. 
What do you think is the deepest, oh, greatest challenge of our time? I think it is social fragmentation, social isolation. Yeah. We are just coming apart as a society. And for college kids, that's the one they're going to have to grapple with, how to take a beautifully diverse society and make it a coherent society where we really know each other, we listen to each other, we trust each other. That's, that's a lifetime challenge for a young generation. We started this a conversation with uh, the quote from uh, Rabbi Goldstein, we have lost our soul. Do you think we've lost our soul? Or are we trying, to, are we in the midst of gaining our soul? Yeah, well, you have to go through the valley. And what the rabbi said was, he, he pointed out a truth, and we, I think we all understand that truth. And when we all understand the truth, we can change our behavior to reflect the truth. And so I think we've had a rough few years, and a lot of people are lying dead from mass shootings and other things. Uh, and, but people feel and adjust uh, and we have a lot of things around us to help us. Yes, and how many will have to be killed before we do something? I, I know, but I don't know, that is... Yeah. That's the, the, the weird question of every era. Yes. So, besides your work or your family and children, what do you believe is your, your David Brooks, what is your true offering to the world? Yeah, well, I hope... I, I sometimes say our conversation is over-politicized and under-moralized. We don't talk about... Um, things like we've been talking about for the last hour enough. Yeah. We talk too much about the polls. And so I try to be another voice, as you are in the public conversation, talking about the things that really matter. How do you do forgiveness? How do you go through life with a feeling of gratitude? And so I, that's one of my purposes. I hope to love my family and my, the people around me. And then I hope to create, help create a movement for, of these weavers who are who I think are the force that's really gonna shape society. Uh, we touched on this earlier when we were talking about the quest for a moral life, which is a subtitle to Second Mountain. But how would you describe a well-lived life? What are the signs of a life well-lived? Yeah. Well, I think it is, it's someone that's planted. It's someone who's planted themselves down in a place, in a vocation, a calling, uh, with their friends and their family, and they're dependent. So I, I am become suspicious of an independent life. We say we all want to be free. I was free. Freedom stinks. You don't want to be free. You want political freedom, that's good. Economic freedom, okay. Social freedom, where you're just free-floating and unattached, keeping your options open, that's not a good life, in my view. So the, the, the good life is the one where you look at that person and you say, I know what their commitments are. It radiates out from them. They love this organization. Yeah. They love teaching. Well, they love this family. They are in this neighborhood and they're making this neighborhood work. Well, a good life is one that has meaning and value and purpose yeah. for something beyond yourself. Right. It's not just the next pair of shoes and the next yeah. pocketbook and the yeah. next square footage or the next, you know. Yeah. Although all those things may yeah. be fun. And uh, I say in the book, everyone tells you to live for a cause larger than self, but nobody tells you how. Yes. And so doing the exact detail work of how is, is that's the hard part. How that's do you begin I, to do that? So, so you just already established God is weird. <laughs> so if you had one question to ask, old weird God, <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> what happens after this? <laughs> Good. I, I mean, that's curious a question. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah. You're gonna find out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm gonna know. find out. Right. God's gonna say. God's gonna say. The answer is coming. Right, yeah. <laughs> the answer is coming. My pleasure. Oh, thank you so My much. My pleasure thank to talk so to you. Much. Thank you for the second mountain. Oh, thank you so yeah. much. Thank, thank you for you. everything you've done to actually be the foundation for it. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, 
and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.